You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. We continue our new sermon series. We find ourselves this week in John chapter 1. We'll read uh, the first 18 verses, 1 through 18 in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This is God's word. Good morning. Um, We're continuing uh, this Sunday. We're continuing this Sunday in the series, a five-sermon series on... um, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And last week we spoke and spent some time in what was partially triumphant. I mean, we spent a lot of time in darkness, okay? We spent a lot of time talking about how darkness came into the world, how God created all things, how he made all things very good, and then darkness spread throughout the earth. And I did want to point to some hope that was in it, and at the end I pointed towards what God's ultimate direction, that he had promised uh, a descendant of Abraham. But this week... It's all about victory. This is an easy one to preach. It's all about victory. It's about God sending Christ, as we read here, as the Word who became flesh, and the light into the world, and the darkness did not overcome him. In fact, he conquered, and I would say triumphed over darkness. That's what we're told in Scripture. And we're going to dig into that, And we're going to read about this, and we're going to spend some time 
mainly, primarily focused coming out of the, of the letter of John, but spend some time in some places and locations and text around the Bible because we're going to want to look at how these uh, themes interconnect and how God is showing us and revealing us through Scripture what he has done in absolution in Christ. So why don't we ask, pray together if you would pray with me, uh, that the Spirit would be with us and teach us and guide us in all truth. Father, thank you for your kindness this morning. We are so grateful for the gift that is Christ. I know I am so grateful for the opportunity we get to open up your word. I'm so thankful that the wisdom that is held in these books, that you reveal that to your people through your spirit. God, I pray that you give us that wisdom this morning. That you open our eyes and our hearts and our ears, that we would see, that we would hear, that we would know and recognize truth. And God, we would be drawn with even more compassion with even more conviction and adoration for Christ and who he is and what you've done in him. God, thank you for all you've done. And I suppose in Christ's name. I'm Chad, one of the pastors of King's Cross. And I am thoroughly excited to talk about this, this topic. If there is a good God, why is there so much evil in the world? Is that the question? Why is this God not doing something about this evil that's in the word, world? By the way, this is not a new question. This goes all the way back to a guy named Epicurus, a philosopher, who actually posited, and he reasoned this. He said, if God knows about our suffering, and he's all-knowing, if he cares about our suffering, he's all-loving, and can do something about our suffering, he's all-powerful, then there shouldn't be any suffering. He said, if there is a God who is all-knowing about our suffering, he is all-loving about our suffering, and he can do something about our suffering, then there shouldn't be any suffering. And this is the same argument in the line of thinking that goes into many of the um, talking heads of atheism. If you ever venture into this dark side of the Internet uh, to watch these videos of people arguing about, wow, it's not a new-fashioned argument. It's just saying God should stop all these things if he is good, if he is powerful, and if he knows everything. It's not a new argument, and it has to do with evil, because the truth is, like us, they know that there is evil in the world. I mean, we see the devastation, we see the pain, we see the loss of life, we see abuse, we see injustice. And it bothers us, and it stirs us, and like us, those who make this argument say there's something that should be done about it. What I want to argue, or I want to point to today, is not that God has done nothing about it, but he has absolutely done everything about it. What I want to point to today is not that God is sitting by impotent in the face of evil, but he has in fact conquered it already. And now you're like, wow, it's all around, it's present. We'll get there. We know it's here. But by the way, victory is already sealed. See, the argument here is that in some way, if God was all-powerful, he would destroy evil. But I like to actually consider the argument that the psalmist makes where he says, if God were to judge evil, who could stand? If God came down on evil, who would be left? Now, philosopher and Christian rap artist Lecrae, from his, from his um, song that I enjoy very much called The Truth, 
He has a segment, by the way. There's some great lyrics in some of his songs, at least the ones that I remember listening to. I have a very diverse musical palette. Okay. But in Lecrae, he says this. He says, hey, look, man, some people say that God ain't real. I'm going to read it just like the lyrics say. Because they don't see how a good God can, can exist with all this evil in the world. If God is real, then he should stop all this evil because he's all-powerful, right? What is evil, though, man? It's anything that's against God. It's anything morally bad or wrong. It's murder, it's rape, stealing, lying, cheating. But if we want God to stop evil, do we want him to stop all or just a little bit of it? If he stops us from doing evil things, what about lying? What about evil thoughts? I mean, where do you stop? The murder level, the lying level, or the thinking level? If we want him to stop evil, we got to be consistent. We can't just pick and choose. That means you and I would be eliminated, right? Because we think evil stuff. And if that's true, we should be eliminated. But thanks be to God that Jesus stepped in to save us from our sin. Christ died for all the evilness. Repent and turn to Jesus. I tried to draw out because I want to point to us as we look at John, but then we look at other texts in Scripture. I want us to understand this, brothers and sisters. As a believer who's in the world, we often feel like we're on the defensive. I'm telling you, it's true. That often having to defend why such things happen in churches around the world, why, why we believe certain things that aren't kind or loving, why we aren't tolerant of things in this world. And I'm not going to get into the minutia of those things. We can talk about details like that. But I want to point out today that we're not on the defensive. That God's victory is sure in Christ. And that there is, as we look in this text, and throughout Scripture, an intelligent book that God has written and given to us, which demonstrates to us that his victory is sure. And that we can have confidence as we go into this world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of the world, and the kingdom of light has triumphed over darkness in Christ. I tried to think of some illustrations of what this looked like, and my mind goes all kinds of places. One of them I went to is D-Day, Normandy. Anybody remember World War II? Huh? Like that? Okay, big day. D-Day was the day of days. It's where the Allied powers, they infiltrated mainland in Europe. It was a huge event. It was a devastating event. A lot of lives lost. If you watch the movie Saving Private Ryan, the beginning of that movie is them landing on the shores in Normandy. It was a huge risk, but it paid huge dividends because it was the beginning of the end for the Axis powers as they were able to penetrate into Europe and march towards Berlin. Okay? So what? The war wasn't over yet, but the day that sealed the deal had already passed. Okay. That still was too weak because there was a lot of fighting and death. And the victory wasn't necessarily sure, but that day did mark the beginning of the end for, 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 for Germany. Now, I went to another place. I said, here's a better example. Anybody seen Endgame? Marvel movie fans in here like that? Oh, yeah, I see that hand. Okay, Endgame. Thanos, stones, anybody? I'm getting comic books here. All right, he snaps his finger, done. At the end of Endgame, he thinks he gets the stones back, and Thanos is excited, right? Puts his hands up, snaps his fingers, nothing happens. That's when he looks over, and Iron Man 
Tony Stark raises his hand, and he has a glove, and he has the stones in his glove. And he, the very famous line from the movie, says, I am Iron Man. Snaps his fingers. And every evil in that space disintegrates away. Here's a connection. Thanos is watching as soon as the fingers snap. You know what he does? He knows it's over. He goes and sits down. I'm done. Why? Because in that snap, Tony had sealed the deal. There was nothing else left for them to do. There was nothing left that was going to happen. In comic book lore, once those stone and what Tony had done, what Iron Man had done, everything was over for those that opposed him. Now, when Christ is on the cross to die for our sin and for all of humanity, everything was over for those who opposed him. There was nothing left to be done. They have no recourse. And while we don't see the evil of this world fade away like the end of Endgame, it doesn't just fade away. It's a much more drawn-out process. The only hope evil has is to prolong it. To prolong it. And then my mind went to one more illustration because in my head I'm thinking a lot of video games. I didn't want to go into that too much because that's not going to connect with everybody. But there was a popular game, again, in the 1900s. I used an illustration from that before called NBA Jam. Anybody heard this? I see that here. <laughs> NBA Jam is awesome, okay? Tons of slogans came from this video game. Boom shakalaka, okay? He's on fire. Look it up, it's amazing. It was an era. But one of the phrases that came to my mind was when the game was near the end and you scored another bucket, meaning that it was over for the other team. They use this commonly in like basketball and college. They talk about this. You know, when you're down by two or three, you still have hope. And all of a sudden, the other team scores a couple buckets. You're like, well, hope's gone. As soon as that happened in the game, they would say, the nail in the coffin. Meaning, the other team had lost, and that was the finishing move. Jesus Christ put the nail in the coffin. On evil and sin and death, he conquered it on the cross. So how do we see that in this text? How do we see that illustrated here in this text? How do we answer to people when they say, why is there so much, so much evil in the world? Well, let's look. And in first, I mean, in John, not first John, in John 1, 1 through 4, it says that God did not stand by idly. In fact, the light was always present. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him, and apart from Him not one thing was created that His and be created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. See, we talked about last week where during creation in Genesis 1, we see the evidence of God creating all things and doing it very good. Not that it was all that it could possibly be, but that it was made right from the beginning. And that, that Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and, and encouraged to cultivate the garden and to press forward and steward the earth as God had created it. And then we saw that in Genesis 3, that darkness and death entered the earth through Eden. That the serpent in the garden tempted Adam and Eve, and they, and they took from the, the tree, and they 
bit the fruit, and from that point on, death was in the world. In Genesis 6, we talk about where God demonstrates that darkness is multiplying on the earth, and every thought was evil continually, so he responds with the flood. And in Genesis 10, darkness continues to be an issue as men and women gather together to build edifices to their own power and glory and worship of gods who are not God overall. And, and God responds by sending them all over the world and the nations. And the second part of this verse in chapter 5, I mean, verse 5 of John 1 is important because that light was present, the light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Light of Christ, the Son of God, was present with God from the beginning. His light shined in the darkness. He was there. He saw all that was done, all the evil that was pervasive. He saw and he was with God and they, they pushed back the darkness. We said Genesis 1. They walked with mankind, but once the fall came, they had to promise a rescuer. They said, look forward to the time which we will save you. Genesis 6, the response to the evil was to flood the earth and slow the, the darkness that was spreading. In Genesis 10, he scatters the nation so that they would not pursue more and more evil as they were already intending. And at the end of Genesis 10 and 11, Genesis 11, he also promises to bless the nations through Abraham. That's the turn. The turn, if you will, in Genesis, where while the darkness did not overcome the light, the light still had a plan. Jesus had a plan. God had a plan. And his plan was that he would take from the nations one man, which is Abraham, and from him send a promised descendant who would bless all people. Now, I look at this text and I look at Deuteronomy 32 actually as a parallel to what's going on in this passage. And I'm going to take a moment, a very brief moment, to talk a little bit about what's going on in that passage. Moses is talking about this very instance of, of, of humanity being spread all over the world in Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9. We're not getting any signal up there? Okay. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of past generation. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders and they will teach you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, he divided the human race. He divided them and sent them around the division that occurred. He set the boundaries of the people according to the number of, and in your CSB, if you're reading 32, 7 through 9, it says the sons of Israel. Last week I started, made a reference to the fact that I actually think the better interpretation, and based on other texts, is the sons of God. That there is a way and a sense in which God is taking the human race and he, is, he, he says you are evil beyond belief. I will disinherit you from my ownership and send you and scatter you around to whatever you desire. You go after those other spirits. Remember the sons of God was a phrase used for angels in the Old Testament. In Genesis 6, the sons of God was an interpretation that was used for angels, for, for uh, spirits that came down to daughters of men. And then in verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his inheritance. Now, if you take sons of Israel and say this is good, I go with this. I don't think it actually hurts our, our interpretations. But there, I'm going to tell you a couple reasons I prefer sons of God, and I'm going to give you a couple reasons why I think it opens up to see what God's doing in other spaces. First and foremost, the oldest texts we have actually say sons of God. Uh, in Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, uh, we see that um, that in the Septuagint interpretation there, it talks about angels. 
and sons of God being those uh, who, who, who God divided the nations up to. Additionally, the suggestion here is that God is, is taking the, the authority of the world and he is doing like he does with us. Think about us as humanity, where he is, he is entrusting Adam and Eve to the stewardship of the earth. There's language throughout scripture that, 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 that sees that God is in the spiritual realm also extending stewardship to those that serve with him in the heavenlies. And so in this, in this interpretation, we also see Daniel 10 suggesting that there are regional spirits and powers. A prince of Persia is referenced to battling against Michael. And then when we go fast forward to the New Testament, we see that Paul, when he talks about the worship of idols, he says, is food sacrifice to idol anything? Is that idol anything? No. But he says this, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they're sacrificing to demons and not God. So Paul at least suggests that there are spiritual beings behind the worship of false idols. And so what I'm telling you is this. In this passage, what I'm seeing is that God has taken humanity and said, you are evil and you've gone and scattered. I'm going to take my promised seed in Abraham. You go to worship the God you desire. Instead, I'm going to take my portion, which is Jacob's portion, and I'm going to bless through him the nations that are around. And so now we see God in his place, taking his people. He's determining to bless them through the promised descendant of Abraham. And he promises also to judge and destroy the evil powers and authorities of this world. Where do I see that? I look at Psalm 82. Yeah, okay. Okay. Psalm 82. This isn't in the slides anyway. In Psalm 82, it reads this. God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. Now, let me explain. I'm not saying that there are multiple gods. What I'm saying is that this text says that God cast judgment among gods. What does it mean? Last week, we discussed this, and I'll point this out again. The word Elohim, we attach certain attributes of perfection and holiness and righteousness because we often connect that directly with the God most high. The Bible often uses it in terms of spiritual beings, and that's what it does here. That there are spirits around God. He's in a divine assembly, which is also referenced in Job. And he says this as he pronounces judgment to them. How long will you judge unjustly? And how partiality of the wicked? He tells them, provide justice for the needy and the followers. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. Listen, they don't understand. They don't know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So God is in his justice and perfection looking at the spirits which have rebelled against him and are ruling in this earth. Paul talks about this. He talks about rulers of the power of the air. He talks about we don't fight against flesh and blood. And God is proclaiming judgment on them and saying, how long will you be this way? How long will you lead people into destitution? How long will you continue to, to, to and be unjust and oppress people? And then it ends this way. I said, you are Elohim. You are God. You are spirit. You are all sons of the Most High. Again, that language of angels of heavenly nature. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other. He promises in Psalm 82. 
to judge them for their evil. So how does he do that? Psalm 82, 1a. Rise up, God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. God has determined in the Old Testament that that evil which they purveyed was not going to go un, unjudged. That he was going to send someone into the world in order to crush what they were doing and to make things right. And when we continue reading in John 1, that's exactly what John summarizes about Jesus. Because he says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is incredibly radical. Do you know how amazingly radical this is? That the God of gods would say he would come into this world with these dirty, filthy, evil humans. That is a stumbling block for most religion. That the, that the God that you claim the greatest, most high God would dare do that? Never. But that's exactly what John tells us. He didn't stand on the sidelines and allow the world to be ravaged by darkness. Instead, he entered into it. He saw humans in their humanity and he met us there. Hebrews says exactly that. That we don't have a high priest that can identify with our suffering. But he's been tempted in every way the same way we have. And if you don't, if you don't need, if you need any other example, in John 11, the shortest yet most profound and powerful verses in the Bible can be found. The God of the universe came into the world and he looked on us with compassion. And in John 11, he comes to a funeral of his dear friend and saw brothers and sisters of his friend and all the friends crying and weeping because of what darkness was doing to the world. Death comes from sin. Death comes from evil. Death comes from all those things which God is against. And in John eleven thirty five. It simply says this, Jesus wept. We don't serve a God that cannot identify with us. He willingly entered into the suffering with us. And John was proclaiming that when he said the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He came into the world. And by the way, he didn't just come into the world to weep with us. He came into the world to conquer all those things that, that curse us. All the evil. And in Matthew 16, Jesus says exactly that. He says that I have come to establish my church. And when he does it, he takes his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now this is a really weird place for them to go, by the way. Caesarea Philippi was actually, at the time, I believe, being used as a temple of Zeus, a, a, a foreign god. By even the Canaanites surrounding the area, there were caves there they thought literally led to the underworld. Gates to hell. There, there was evil when, when even in the Old and New Testament, the tribe of Dan was set up there and, and, and there was Baal worship set up on a mountain nearby a Kermit. That's where they worship Baal. And then even when Israel took back over that land, the, the evil king set up their Baal worship on that mountain. 
God took his disciples to that place, the place where, where Canaanites believed that, Eve, that, that God descended into the darkness and the depth and came back on a seasonal basis. And they worshipped Pan, who was a fertility god there, by all manner of evil. And this is what Christ said at that point. He said, when Jesus came to this region of Cesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They reply, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus says, but you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's at this point Jesus responds to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jodah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now this verse right here is used between Protestants and Catholics when talking about the establishment of the papacy. Talking about the rock of Peter being the establishment of the church. I would venture to say, no matter what we talk about there, that Christ is standing in a place and talking about this rock. That this place where Baal is worshipped, this place where evil is prevailed, at this place where all of Canaan and the evil of kings of the past in Israel have worshipped foreign deities. At this place, I will put my church on top of it and crush it. And says the gates of hell will not prevail or overpower it. By the way, when it comes to warfare, I don't know if you guys have ever tried this if you're in a battle. Don't try to fight the enemy with gates. Okay? You don't get them up front like, hold the gates at the front. We're running at our enemy. What's my point? Hell's not on the offensive. They're trying to bar the gates and keep out the advance of the kingdom of light. And Christ says, I will build my church here on top of what they have meant for evil. I will plant my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As if to double down on this very proclamation, he goes to a nearby mountain in the next passage. And you know what happens there? The transfiguration. People studying the area say he probably went to Mount Hermon, which is where Baal worship was established. And he came in all his glory and stood there and said, here I am. I'm here to crush you. Have your go. Do you know what he starts talking about right after that? He begins to talk about his own death. It's as if Christ shows up on the scene Evil is pervasive throughout the world. He says, I will crush what is sinful. I will crush the enemy. I will establish my church. Come and get me. And the rulers of this world began to try to put him to death. But what they didn't realize that in his death is when Christ really conquers them. Do you see that? That, that actually even Paul says this, if the rulers of this age had known what was going to happen, they wouldn't have put Christ to death. They didn't realize that where they thought they were gaining victory in putting to death the Messiah, the Son of God, that he was actually planting his flag and, and proclaiming absolute victory over all death, sin, in the world. Look at John 1, 10-13. How did he respond to evil? What did Christ do? Well, first, he defeats Dead. He was in the world and the world was created through him and the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them rights to be the children of God. 
To those who believe in his name, who are born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. See, we see that in Genesis 3, death enters the world, and that's a real problem for us. That's a real problem for us. What do we do with guilt and evil? It's a question from the beginning. It's why does God allow it to be? But if God were to destroy all people, that's me and you. If he gets rid of evil. So what does he do about that evil that's in the world? Well, he promises a redeemer. He says to the serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly, but there will be one who comes after me, a seed of the woman, an offspring, her offspring, who will strike your head, who will crush it, even though you strike his heel. See, humans everywhere have been trying to figure out how to way to conquer death on their own, even all the way back to ancient legends. People are looking for uh, fountains of youth, right? Have you seen movies about this? Regularity, trying to overcome what is death and what it does in ravaging the world. Fountains of youth, eternal life. We're trying every fad diet, intermittent fasting, food hacking today to try to overcome our aging and death process. It's inevitable. What's the saying? There's two things in the world that are inevitable, death and taxes. I see the person is involved with taxes like mouthing it. And John... 1, 10 through 13 tells us that, that God has given those who are dead in sin through Christ the right to be children of God. He conquers that death, that sin that's in them, and gives them a right to be his children. But how does he accomplish it? Well, it's the same thing that he told Nicodemus in John 3. He tells them, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. That the only solution for death in this world is that the person who's born in sin must be born again. And what Christ did on the cross is he gave us that ability, that opportunity, that power to be born again in him through his death on the cross. In his death and resurrection, he offers us rebirth and life. And at that point that now you're buried with Christ in his death and his perfection and resurrected with him... Satan no longer has an accusation against you. There's no longer a claim on your life. That's what Paul tells us in Roman 8. Who can bring an accusation against God elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more, he's been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ. So that now that those who are alive in Christ... Stand in victory over death with him. And if it's not any more of a direct attack on those rulers in Colossians 2, 8 through 15. I'm sorry, 13 through 15. Paul says this, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he's taken it away, how? By nailing it to the cross. And as one exclamation point on the end, Paul says this in 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he disgraced them publicly, triumphing over them in him. There's no more accusation against us, believers. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have life. Death doesn't have a hold anymore. 
death doesn't have a hold anymore. First, he triumphs over death. Jesus destroys death. The second thing he does is he transforms hearts. The problems we have here is not only are we, do we need to be saved from death and the, and the curse of death, but we have to be saved from ourselves. The evil that resides in us. The evil that, that tempts us towards evil. Paul even says even when the law was given, he, it made him sin even more because he now knew his law, what sin was. That sounds like having a child, right? Once you give them the rule, it's like they do it even more. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to break that one even harder. John 1, 14-17. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. This is Him coming into the world. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because He existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, in Genesis 6, in Genesis 6 and even in Genesis 11, we saw that sin darkened on the earth, that men became exceedingly sinful. Genesis 6 says that every thought of their mind was evil all the time. Every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man of the earth and was deeply grieved. And, and, and when we fast forward to the point in which God has called out Abraham, and then we, in our previous sermon a series, talked about Exodus, where he calls out a nation of people. He's got a group of people that are still exceedingly sinful. It's still a heart problem. And God has to do something with that. And so he gives the law. He gives the law to put reins around human sinfulness. Because Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3, God says, this is the command, the statutes, the ordinance. He tells them, the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the land you're about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands. That was the intention of the law. God gave it to put constraints on human sinfulness. That was the initial. I'm not going to say that he didn't give it saying, hey, don't worry about following this. This is just some stack of things. He actually told them to follow. But the law could not cure depravity. It only could constrain it. In fact, what I mentioned in Romans 7, Paul says, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And this sounds like a child to me. But it's also us. Listen, there's absolutely, mo in case you didn't know this, the absolutely most knowledgeable people in the world on how to constrain the depravity of tiny, tiny human children are the young, unmarried, or newly married with no children. Did you know that? The absolutely most knowledgeable people in the world on how to raise a child are the young, unmarried, or newly married with no children. I was there once. If you... I don't know if I believe you. If you've ever been sitting in a restaurant and you saw the kid across the table unruly running around the restaurant, you didn't think in your head at some point, I know what they should do. I did. No kids. I'm like, when I was a child, I won't let my kid do that when I have kids. See, in those early years, the only constraint, it seems, uh, is to lay down law. Really? I mean, think about that. How do you control a little kid? You give him rules. Tell them what to do. 
go here, do that, don't do this. And, and also simultaneously to reinforce, enforce those laws with some consistency and with love. And this is not unlike God. Think about that. In, in, in the wilderness, when God was leading Israel out of Egypt, he, he actually gave them some direction, gave them some guidance. But all along, he was providing for their needs. Right? He, he gave them water when they needed it. He gave them food when they needed it. And yet they grumbled about it. But the real truth is, and hopefully as a parent you know this, that the only, this only lasts for a time. And what your children ultimately need is a transformed heart. They need to change from the inside. They can follow rules. They can, they can go after what you say and what you do. But, but really, if your goals are true, you, you don't want them just to follow you because they're scared of you. They don't, you don't want them to follow you just because they, they're concerned about what might happen in the end. You want your child to grow into a place where they love you, know you. And their heart is transformed because they follow you because of that. The same thing that, that, that God says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And, and, and in fact, that's what Jesus calls out on the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about Old Testament law, he says, you've heard this in the law, you've heard this in the law. But I want to point out, even if you follow it, there's still a heart issue. There's still a heart issue that needs to be addressed. And what I want us to see today is that even as God in Christ destroys death, he also promises to do exactly that, to give us a new heart. Text in Jeremiah and Ezekiel reference this. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes. God is not interested in you simply following after him because you're just scared of the law, but said he wants to give you a new heart to follow after him. He wants to take his spirit and put it inside his followers, his believers. So that they can follow after him and follow carefully and observe his ordinances. So that holiness is not coming only from the outside and forced on you, but rather originating in the inside and changing you. And this is exactly what God accomplishes in Christ. In John 16, he talks about the fact with his disciples. He said, it's good and for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, the Holy Spirit will come to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. I have still many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Brothers and sisters, this is why I have confidence. If you are in Christ, that he will lead you into all truth because his spirit is in you. That's the reason, even if we have disagreements on the smaller things, that I can have a peace and a love for you. Because I trust that the Spirit is in you as he's in me. If you're a disciple of Christ, the Spirit of God is in you. And I know that the battle against the flesh in our lives can feel insurmountable. There are times when failure can be more than frustrating and it can be difficult at times to imagine that you're truly a Christian. Have you ever wrestled with that? How can God really love me when I struggle so much with the sin that's still present in my life? As a father, I want to see my children succeed, to conquer their fears, to overcome every evil inclination in their heart, and to follow passionately after the Lord and King Jesus. But no matter what they do, no matter how they fail, no matter what destructive path my children choose, 
I might weep. I might have sleepless nights. I might suffer. But I will fight for them. And I will do everything within my ability on this side of eternity to show them my love and to point them to the love of Christ. If me, if I, who is a weak and imperfect man, can love them that way, how much more will the perfect Father in heaven patiently love and lead his children with all wisdom and understanding? His spirit is in you, and any conviction of sin is evidence that he's at work in you. Otherwise, you wouldn't care. He's transforming you day by day more and more into the likeness of Jesus. God is changing you and he's working in you to change the world around you, through you. In powerful ways. And I think there are times that we give up way too much ground on the profound transformative power of Christ in the entire world. I know that we see evil and destruction around us and we think, wow, could it be any darker? Maybe you don't. Maybe you do. Can I tell you that when Christ came into the world and that he, the gospel spread around the Greco-Roman culture and space, he changed everything. Even people that didn't want to bow their knee. And to prove or to point to this, I can actually point to someone who's a former agnostic atheist who says the exact same thing. Now, this guy's name is Tom Holland, but he's not Spider-Man. But Tom Holland is an author and a historian, and actually he walked away from his faith uh, in the Anglican church. His mom raised him in. His father was an atheist. He walked away from that because he was much more uh, captivated by the Greco-Roman culture, the power there. He would have said the story that when I was reading or in church and I was listening to a story about Pilate and Jesus, I was much more interested in Pilate and like the, 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 the regalia and the, the power and the move and authority and the culture that was around him. And so he studied that and he read on that and he wrote books on that. And he did all those things. He went and got a PhD. But he came to a point where he realized when he looked at the culture of that day before Christ, that, that he had no connecting point or understanding with their morality. That the way they saw the world and the power structure they live in was so foreign to him. And what he realized was that he was so much more affected by Christ. And this world around him was so much more shaped by Christianity than we ever realized. He said this, he wrote a book recently called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And he wrote an article in 2016 in which he said this statement, Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution in Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies will take for granted that it's nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It's why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my moral and ethics, I have learned to accept that I'm not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. He goes on in other places that Christianity transformed even the ethic of how women were treated. 
And we're criticized today in the church about how, how our things are handled today. But the truth is those who critique the church stand from a footing in which their mind was shaped by Christendom. So even though God has not taken over every art, he has impacted and shaped the world that we even live in. And the third way in which God, Christ changed everything on the cross is he reclaims the nations. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who himself is God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Now, this doesn't explicitly say in that section of text, and he goes on to the nations, but what I would point to is the fact that God was not known among the nations around the world. And if we look at Revelation, when we see the commentary on Jesus and the revelation of Jesus Christ, he is exposed and presented to the entire universe, the entire world, and all nations come to bow in Babel, we see the disinheritance of the nation, and they're just sent out over the globe. And they're sent around the world to follow after other gods. But God still wants the nations, and he promises to bless the nations through Abraham. And the first person he comes to, Jesus comes to, is a Samaritan woman who's not Jewish. And at Babel, while the nations were scattered around different languages, in Acts 2, we actually see God mix up the languages of the, of the disciples to reach all those around him from other nations. Literally reversing what was done. Literally taking his people and dividing their tongues so that they might speak the gospel to a multitude of people from different nations. And Acts 2 at Pentecost is actually a Hopefully we have this. I'm going to show you. It was a festival. Honestly, it was a festival. Interesting festival at Pentecost in Jewish culture. It was a festival of first fruits. Celebrating the first of the harvest. And, and when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like what is violent rushing wind came from heaven. And it filled the whole house where they were staying. And they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each other. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enables them. And so what we see here is the Holy Spirit comes like Jesus promised. But the first thing he does is he, he begins to speak in different tongues, different languages, that interpretation through his disciples. Now why is this interesting? Why is this unique? Why is this important? Well, check this out. Being a festival, verse 5 says, there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. It's like God has a plan. He sets his disciples to speaking the gospel in different languages at the very exact time that devout Jews from around every nation are in Jerusalem to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together. He had a stirring, the noise, the crowd said, what's up? They came because they were confused. And then they heard, each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these speaking Galileans? How is it each of us can hear them in their own, our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongue. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? The story goes on that Peter then presents the gospel, and he preaches over them and says, repent and come to Christ. And it says that 3,000 were added to the church. Now, all these people were not from Jerusalem. Where were they from? Well, let's look. You got the image? 
the known world at that time, including Rome. Look at that, Rome. They took the gospel of Christ from that place. They followed after the teachings of the disciples, and then they went to their own place. God didn't even have to wait for the disciples to go be missionaries. He inaugurated missionaries at Pentecost. Did you know when Paul wrote the letter to Rome, he was writing to the church. He'd never been there. That God took what had happened in Babel and he reversed it at Pentecost. And he began to send his disciples around the nations to call them back to him. But what was the message? Hey, there was a time that I'm overlooking that you were wandering. But the time is now to come back to me. That though you have wandered after foreign gods, you will now worship the one true God. And Paul goes from that place and he goes on a mission trip around what he knew as the known world. And he even writes to Rome and he says, I'm gonna, i got to get to Tarsus because that's in Spain. He's like, that's the last place I know of. Now Paul had a tight vision of what reality was because we know there's far more. But what God started in him, Paul aimed to try to finish because he knew that God was doing something at Pentecost to call back the nations to himself. That though they were dispersed around the world. And then in Revelation 7 and 9, we see the nations eventually gather around the throne. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, <clears throat> tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language surrounding the throne saying that salvation belongs to our God. We no longer worship other gods. We worship the one true God, the Lamb. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, this means that the church, the light of the gospel that goes to the nation, continues now to shine through us, the children of God. Matthew 13 has a parable that Jesus used about a mustard seed. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and he sowed in the field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the sky come and rest in its branches. That's the way with the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ comes as a light in the world and plants a seed among the disciples in Palestine. And out of Pentecost and to the ends of the earth, world, that kingdom has continued to grow and build. And it continues on in us. Just like in Matthew 5, where he tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. You and I, brothers and sisters, are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In that same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We are on that continued mission to proclaim Christ's conquest over death, that he is reversing the curse and that he desires to change and transform lives from the inside out through his spirit. And that he is calling the nations back to himself. That the world no longer needs to walk in darkness, but rather can serve and worship the one true God. And that's where Jesus commissioned his people when he said these exact things in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Darkness does not rule. I have authority. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to preserve everything I've commanded. And remember what? I am with you always to the end of the age.
Brothers and sisters, we have that commission. And over the next weeks, we're going to talk about what that looks like as God continues to work through our church here locally. And continues to work in us directly. That we carry the light of the world into a dark world around us. That we shine as lights in the darkness. And if you're an unbeliever who's with us today, that light is offered to all men. Don't walk away from Christ back into the darkness. Because that light is the life of men. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your goodness in Christ. Grant us today your grace as we continue to worship you. That the things we've even heard and read today would not pass over our hearts and our minds, but rather penetrate in. That would change us from the inside. That we would see the absolute power of your strength in Christ to conquer death and sin. And that we would recognize that we aren't sitting back weak. We are not sitting as one who follows after a, a killed Palestinian man, Jesus, but one who has resurrected and conquered death and sin in the world. He's not dead, he's alive. And we can walk in that life, boldly proclaiming the gospel to all that we meet, trusting that your spirit will change hearts and minds and lives, trusting that your spirit will change us and continue to make us more like Christ. We've got ultimately knowing that it's in your timing and in your will that you will bring and make all things new. God, grant us that peace today. Thank you and ask all this in Christ's name.